Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we are going to discuss Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. Joining me today to help cover this topic is a good friend and colleague, Mr. Stephen Taranjo, call sign Tango. Before we begin, I would like to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman provides full-spectrum superiority. Their innovative, multifunction, interoperable solutions ensure warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions no matter the environment or domain. Learn more at ngc.com slash EW. All right, I'm here with Mr. Steve Taranjo, call sign Tango. Tango is the dean of the Reginald Victor Jones Institute, a new institute that focuses on electromagnetic spectrum operations. He's also the vice president and founder of Warrior Support Solutions, which provides subject matter expertise to the DOD industry and academia in the advancement of electronic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations. He is a retired Air Force officer, having served 20 years as both a navigator and electronic warfare officer. Tango, it's great to have you on today's show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ken, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I look forward to uh, our discussion. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover today, but before we begin, I thought it would be good to uh, talk a little bit about your new initiative, the Reginald Victor Jones Institute. It's a center of excellence for electromagnetic spectrum operations that's new. Many people who probably know you from our community, but they might not know about this new org- this new institute that you've set up. So uh, why don't you say a little bit about what the RVJ Institute is about? Very good. Yeah, about uh, two years ago, March of about 2019, Melinda and I were sitting around frustrated again by this. And Melinda is your wife. Yes, Melinda is my wife and my business partner. She's actually the president and CEO of Warrior Sports Solutions and now uh, acts also as the executive director for the, uh, the Institute. We had a discussion about where things were going with the spectrum, and, and we've been in this business, as you mentioned, for a long time. So it just kind of frustrated how things are going. It occurred to me at the time that what if we did something different? We really need an organization focused on doing scholarly research based on all of the previous studies that have been done over the last few decades. So the intent of the Institute is to capture all of that previously uh, accomplished knowledge, house that in what we're calling a knowledge hub, and make that accessible to industry, academia, DOD specifically, and use that to develop new knowledge related to the spectrum and how the DOD needs to go with spectrum ops. And, and that's very important. I know throughout our conversations, we've talked a lot about advocacy. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, I've talked about in, in presentations that advocacy is really provides two values. The one is the generation and distribution of knowledge, and then it's also the other part. The other value is the facilitation of trade or business or helping your customer accomplish their mission. But going to the knowledge piece is, is really important because from an association perspective, associations are very good at distributing knowledge, but there's oftentimes that gap in the generation of knowledge, kind of getting the information together, coming up with new knowledge for your customers and getting that out there. So could you talk a little bit about how you envision RVJ Institute generating new knowledge that and how it will connect to others in our community for the distribution and facilitation of that knowledge across our community? One of the pillars uh, of the Institute is to capture what we're calling a cadre of experts. There are experts in this community who've been doing this activity for, for decades, and they're not just U.S., they're around the world. And having a catalog of all of these experts, knowing who they are, knowing how to get in touch with them, allows us or will allow us the opportunity to bring them together and collaborate, especially in an environment now where we're doing so much remotely. We, have, we can set up a collaboration space in order for these people from around the world to answer a specific question or uh, develop some new techniques, new technologies with a expert understanding of the area of the spectrum in which they've studied and become experts. So this cadre of experts would be called together on an as-needed basis to answer a question or to, uh, to come up with a new concept. And then they would go back to their day job. And then this new knowledge would be distributed through uh, multiple sources, but would then be housed in our knowledge hub for later use for developing you know, new knowledge beyond that. Now, you're calling it, uh, it's a center of excellence for electromagnetic spectrum operations. And, mm-hmm. and as we'll get to probably later in the conversation, that's a, that's a broad term. There's a lot yeah. of, that covers a lot of ground. It does. So what are some of the areas that you are focused on right now with, under the um, EMSO umbrella in terms of issues or, or topics that you have ready knowledge and, and you're, ready to, you're ready knowledge for your customers as well mm-hmm. as the ability to engage our community on? I'd say the two biggest hot buttons that we've been working of late and it, we're seeing it really coming to, to a peak right now is what we've referred to for years as uh, electromagnetic protection or electromagnetic protect prior to the revisions of the joint pubs. We've always termed EP as a part of electronic warfare. And uh, a challenge with that is that EP features are necessary on every spectrum dependent system, not just electronic warfare systems. So we've I think we've done a disservice to ourselves in that respect, but I, th- I see things changing uh, in the very near future. The other area that we're starting to push a lot toward right now is live virtual constructive capabilities to allow testing and training in a realistic electromagnetic operational environment while not interfering with the local populace around our uh, live ranges or uh, allowing someone to sense our really sensitive technologies. Now, 
one last question before we get onto the topics. And actually, we are the reason why we I wanted you on this show was because of the your your subject matter expertise on electronic protect or electromagnetic protect, particularly as it pertains to JADC2. But one last question about the institute. It has an interesting name, Reginald Victor yes. Jones Institute. And I want to get to that for our listeners because it's a it's a a name that carries a lot of history. It does. With our community. Could you go in and could you explain a little bit about why it's called the RVJ Institute? When we first started thinking about the Institute, you know, who is the father of electronic warfare? Reginald Victor Jones is one of two or three on the list. Do a little research on Reginald Victor Jones, and he was the uh, lead of a team in Britain during World War II that basically discovered what the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was using to guide their aircraft uh, over London and other cities in in Britain to drop bombs. And this is the Battle of the Beams. Correct. Yeah, this is referred to as the Battle of the Beams. And RVJ's discovery of that allowed them to develop a countermeasure and basically steer those beams away into areas of Britain that were not highly populated with the intent of taking the bombs off London. And uh, he, he's very famous for that. You read some of his books and he's, he's got a lot more that he's very famous for, but that was the, the goal. And, and, and that was pretty much the first large-scale use of electronic warfare in... Correct. Correct. That, that was it. Um, and the other reason we, we focused on Reginald Victor Jones is... We want the Institute to be understood and seen as a, an international center of excellence, especially with the national defense strategy and our ongoing discussions about how we're going to work with our allies and partners, especially in the EW space where conflict in the spectrum is challenging enough without us doing it to ourselves. So we wanted to make sure it had an international flavor. So that's where that's where RVGA came from, and we're, uh, we're pretty happy with, with the decision to go with that. Well, thank you, Tango. Uh, I know AOC is looking forward to working with the RVJ Institute to advance MSO advocacy. It's a difficult mission, but uh, look forward to working with you on it. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do 
uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. I want to turn now to the main topic of our conversation, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. JADC2 is basically connecting all military sensors into a single network. It's a great vision, but it does have some challenges. And when you get really down to it, the, the, the backbone of JADC2 is our ability to maneuver in the electromagnetic spectrum. So EMSO plays a key part in executing this vision. So I wanted to start by asking you to talk a little bit about JADC2, its evolution, and what it means for EMSO moving forward. The JADC2 construct basically is designed to give a single leader as a COCOM or uh, above that at the DOD level, a situational awareness picture across an area of, area of responsibility, for example. And that picture today is bits and pieces. What I don't have is that single picture of the battle space. And that battle space obviously includes a lot of components. The EMS is one piece of that. But uh, how do I make a decision on what capabilities I have at my fingertips and what best to use if I don't have awareness of what's available? So the idea of JADC2 is bringing together all of the networks from all of the other services, or let's call them all of the other domains, and present that in a way in which a commander can make a decision based on full knowledge of the scenario, what's the best approach to move forward next. It just creates that vision. And then there's the, a secondary piece to that is the... Uh, ability to develop courses of action in order to speed the decision process for the, the commander. 
One of the challenges about executing JADC2 is that there are a number of different initiatives out there from the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System, ABMS, to Project Convergence from the Army, Project Overmatch from the Navy, other service initiatives. You also have components such as electromagnetic battle management, a lot of different pieces that have to fit together into a larger puzzle. Can you talk a little bit about how DOD is working to integrate these pieces into a single network? As these demonstrations uh, are ongoing, ABMS has their experimentation piece. Project Convergence is moving off um, with some, some great experimentation stuff. Each of these pieces individually are kind of setting the stage for what's the art of the possible. They are limited to, I won't say single service, because some of the ABMS experimentation has included Army involvement and uh, Navy as well. But it's it's not the entire picture, and it's primarily a sensor-to-shooter decision-maker piece. Uh, there's some other parts of the decision process that are going to need to be considered that aren't included directly in that, I won't say limited perspective, but it's not the full picture. At this time, we're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsor, Northrop Grumman. Providing full-spectrum superiority across all domains, that's defining possible. Giving warfighters the freedom to act across the spectrum, especially in highly contested battle spaces, can seem impossible. At Northrop Grumman, we've pushed the boundaries of possible across the spectrum for decades. Today, our cutting-edge, interoperable, multifunction technologies are a revolutionary leap in spectrum dominance. How revolutionary? Imagine detecting the precise location of an adversary long before they ever detect you. Or better yet, denying or degrading an adversary system without them being able to do a thing about it. Your freedom to shape the spectrum is an overwhelming advantage in every domain. An advantage made possible by Northrop Grumman's unique, software-defined, open, safe, secure architecture solutions. It's all part of our commitment to ensure our warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment. That's defining possible. Learn more at ngc.com EW. So how, how do you, how does a service then, they take their, their network that's designed for uh, cross-domain. Where do you draw that line between, you know, making sure that it is compatible with other networks and other domains, but also you're not making assumptions about that compatibility? How does a service uh, go about kind of tackling that issue of a compatible network without making assumptions for the capabilities that are out in the field? Each service is tasked by law to do a certain mission, and they're funded to do that mission. So unfortunately, there's no reward for sharing across services. And I would have to give a lot of credit to the services right now because regardless of reward or not, they see the importance of doing it. And they're they're reaching out to the other services to try and figure out how to make this work uh, in a bigger scale. The joint piece, though, is going to be harder to do because if you set out some joint requirements, and in the Air Force's case, they're the lead service for JADC2, you know, without somebody directing that funding gets spent by each of the services to support JADC2, it's going to be very difficult to make that work. That there, there are ways to make it work. And, I've seen it being pursued at this point. So when you talk about JADC2 and setting up a single network, 
we're talking about integrating sensors across many different platforms and systems operated by each of the services. But not all these sensors are created equal. Some of them are designed to only share information with a specified end user. And so there are some limitations to what these sensors, to how these sensors can be integrated into a larger network. You mentioned earlier about the authority to make decisions on activities, particularly when it gets into sensor data and intelligence versus operations. So this brings us to the Title 10, Title 50 discussion. I wanted I wanted to ask you about how JADC2 tackles this challenge in authorities with the collection and distribution of sensor data. That's a good question because your, your radar warning receiver on your aircraft, as you mentioned, is going to tell the pilot, hey, somebody's looking at you. Well, a SIGINT sensor on a rivet joint aircraft may see the same signal, but their authorities are different than the, uh, the aircraft. So how does the radar warning receiver signal get fused into the JADC2 picture differently than the SIGINT information, just based on it's already created a bigger gray area between Title 10, Title 50. As you watch how the Army pursues uh, their SEMA construct, which has an EW guy and a SIGINT guy sitting next to each other looking at the same signal. So the challenge will be how do we how do we divide that if we still need to? So there's a, a policy issue. Do we need Congress to go back and review Title 10, Title 50? Is it still applicable given today's technology? But we also are going to have to, in, in the meantime, develop ways of tagging the information based on where it's coming from and giving accesses to that information based on Title 10, Title 50 restrictions. And you mentioned the role of artificial intelligence in all this. When we talk about these existing lines of separation between Title 10, Title 50, it's about people on either side making the decision. But when you have artificial intelligence, machine learning, collecting large sums of data across various sensors, analyzing it, how do you keep control of that division or that constraint? And does AI, can you develop these systems to properly tag, oh, well, this this sensor is Intel, and so it has to be distributed and analyzed in a certain way, and this other sensor is operations, so it has to be handled differently. It's obviously rests in algorithms, but are we looking at AI and machine learning as kind of the next evolution of this Title 10, Title 50 debate? And are we prepared to have that conversation yet? As we collect more and more information, and we've seen it for a decade, especially with the streaming video coming back and how much of it do you retain and uh, all the signals analysis that's being done by fewer and fewer signal analysts, that machine learning and AI is becoming that much more important in that area. So it's that's already starting to happen. The trick is training those algorithms with the proper information. And then somebody's going to have to make a determination, what's the difference between Title 10, Title 50? The the challenge is going to be someone's going to have to make a determination how Title 10, Title 50 is based on how it's used. And if the same information is being used to support a commander on the ground in combat, you know, that's this Title 10 information, that's ES, electromagnetic spectrum support. But if it's going to be sent back to an analyst to 
use it for Intel, then it fits in Title 50. So is that same signal both Title 10, Title 50 until somebody determines that we need an analyst to look at it for intelligence? That's a big question that's you know causing this gray area between Title 10, Title 50 that we're really going to have to have it resolved or we're going to have to have some amazingly smart algorithms that can process this stuff real time and in a way that and somebody has to make rules. So it's still going to come back to that. I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of EMSO in JADC2. And I, I view EMSO as more or less the backbone of JADC2 in many ways, because obviously everything we do in, in, a, in an environment, a conflict environment, relies on our ability to access and manage electromagnetic energy electromagnetic spectrum. So if you don't have superiority in the electromagnetic spectrum, you're not going to be able to accomplish anything on the on the JADC2 front because you'll be able to sever that, that network. Could you talk a little bit about how you see EMSO fitting into JADC2 and particularly some of the conversation that you mentioned earlier about specifically electronic electromagnetic protect, electromagnetic support, and electronic attack that make up this traditional EW concept? How do they play into JADC2? Well, under the EMSO construct, the, the piece that enables it all is the, the data links or the communications. So although electromagnetic protection falls under the EMSO construct or in, joint, in, the, in the joint uh, hubs, it's the one enabler that we need to put some more focus on to make this happen. You know, it, the briefings I see on JADC2 still have the lightning bolts connecting all of the different sensors and, and devices. Those lightning bolts aren't guaranteed. As a matter of fact, Russia and China has watched us for the last you know, two decades developing this network warfare concept and have designed capabilities specifically to take those links away. And it's, it's published in their, their open policies, procedures, and doctrine. That's what they're intending to do. I don't believe, partly because I may not be at level of security to be aware, but I don't believe we've focused enough on how to ensure those data links are going to survive in a congested, contested, constrained, or denied electromagnetic operational environment. So that's my concern with JADC2 is whether or not we're going to be able to make all those links, or are we going to accept the fact that we're not going to be able to make all those links and we'll only use what we can get our hands on. And when you're looking at resiliency of those links, it's not just from direct attack on those links, but it's also the interference that you might get from other systems, uh, both commercial and, and, and military, working in that in, in that band of the spectrum. And and then, of course, your ability to overcome that threat to the network, where you have to shift to other data links to to get the, still get the same information, but you have to get it you have to reroute it through a different part of the network and being able to do that real time with, with low latency. So what are some of the opportunities moving forward that you see, particularly on the EP front, which is gonna be responsible for quite frankly, protecting a lot of our sensors from these attacks on the network. On the EP front, what are some of the solutions or what are some of the opportunities moving forward that you see on the EP front that will help us ensure the superiority of our network? You know, the, the classic, EP features that we, we talk about, directional 
transmissions. LPI, LPD are capabilities that allow you to transmit in a way that you're not necessarily sensed by the adversary. That doesn't mean that they won't attempt to, you know, just dump a bunch of noise into the entire bandwidth. But one of the things I'd like to see us look at more is it's frequently be called multispectral capabilities. I'm not a fan of the term multispectral because there is only one spectrum, but there are different regions of the spectrum that can be used. Um, there are free space optics that allow UV visible infrared lights to work to transmit information. Laser communications concepts have been around for a while. They're limited in that uh, you've still got to worry about the environment, uh, the physical environment, clouds, etc., restrict some of that flow. But there are ways to support that, but we've got to open up multiple options for all of our networks to use whatever piece of the spectrum is available. So a couple of weeks ago, President Biden released kind of the blue, his blueprint for a defense budget, obviously the details of which are forthcoming and not released as of this recording. But he gave a blueprint of where he sees uh, defense spending uh, going in, in, in fiscal year 2022. And obviously, JADC2 is going to play an important part in future defense budget planning in DOD and Congress. How do you think DOD should prioritize some of their competing communications requirements for its future network? One of the pieces that really has to be focused on, and I know in the Air Force, uh, new Air Force EMS strategy, they talk about it, is uh, software-defined radios are going to have to be the core of everything. And the sooner we can start on integrating the software-defined capabilities in every spectrum-dependent system, the sooner we'll be able to do the types of things that uh, we want to be able to do with JADC2. Broad-spectrum access, you know, at that point, it becomes a challenge of apertures, but, you know, ESA apertures at this point, electronically scanned arrays, are able to do a lot of capabilities that we're hoping for. But moving to a software-defined capability is going to be the most critical component, I think, to make JADC2 a reality. That would include all of your network connections, but it's also going to include, how do I take a bit of data that's coming through my sensor and digitize it and transmit it so it's not an analog recording? Or along those lines, we, we need to find a way to make data easier to move. And I think software-defined radios give us that, that push. Well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Thank you, Tango, for joining me. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope that you'll be a guest again in the near future. I also want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman's multifunction interoperable solutions create full-spectrum superiority for our warfighters across all domains. Learn more at ngc.com ew. Visit crows.org podcast for more information. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.